Thanks, Alicia. Good morning, friends. Welcome to Bethany Northeast. My name is Silas Sham, associate pastor here, and it is great to have you here. Um, I also want to make a note, Abby and I were away in Toronto uh, for the last week or so, and you know, it was great to know that this community, in light of some of the things that have happened, uh, was able to pull together and be the church in ways that exist outside of just um, Sunday morning. And so for some of you who might not have heard, Jack was in a bike accident, and um, he will be out of commission here uh, for a couple days. He's taking, or for a couple weeks. He has a couple weeks to rest. Um, he's doing okay, and he's doing, um, he's, doing, he's doing all right, and we're working with him, that kind of thing. Um, but in a couple of weeks, he should be back, and we should be ready to work here. So I just wanted to make a note and say thank you to all the people who have stepped up, to all the people who have supported Jack and in prayer, and then same with, um, with Abby and I, people who have made notes and uh, supported Abby and I as well with some of the things that have happened in our family. So with that said, it is really good to be back. I am really glad to be here. Um, Join me for a word of prayer before we dive into the word. Holy God, thank you for the gift of this day, and I pray this morning that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, that it would lead us to the living word, God, Jesus Christ our Lord, and it does this by the power of the Spirit. May we discern your voice and hear from you this morning. And with that, everyone said, Amen. So this morning, we are going to start with a little quiz. I'm going to set the scene for us, and then we'll do the quiz. Imagine that you've just woken up, right? You've brushed your teeth, coffee, all that stuff, and you sit down to grab the morning newspaper. You want to find out what's going on in the world. But, plot twist, the editors forgot to include any words in the paper. So all you have are pictures and illustrations. Somehow it got through, big mistake. But here we are, this morning's edition of the paper, just images. And so I'm going to describe a couple pictures from the front page, and then you're going to try and determine what section of the paper we're in, right? Are we in entertainment? Are we arts? Whatever uh, section of the paper we're in, okay? So on three, we'll shout it out after I finish describing. Sound good? First time in the first section. You are looking at the paper, and you see a picture of a big red dinosaur holding a red object in its claw. I'm not positive. It might be a raptor. Who knows? Um, And then you also look down the page. You see the Statue of Liberty. And instead of the torch in her hand, she has a gold trophy in her hand. Okay? And then lastly, at the bottom of the page, you see a bird, and its colors are outlined in blue, silver, and a bright green. Okay? So on three, if you know what section of the paper we're in, Shout it out. One, two, three. Sports. Sports. Front page works too. Well, yeah. We're in the sports section, obviously, right? Um, next section. There's a bunch of little, paper, little pictures this time, like little logos, and you see a whole bunch of graphs. Again, there's no words or anything. You see jagged lines going up and down, a couple charts on there. What section of the paper are we in? One, two, three. A little scattered that time. We'll go with business, whatever is here. Okay, last one. Here we go. 
This time, you see two animals drawn on the front page. You see a donkey and you see an elephant. And there's a big jagged line going through the middle of the page, separating the page in half. And there might be two of the primary colors on the page as well. What section of the paper are we in? Politics, that's right. Good job, Bethany. Easy work. A plus. Good job. So take a step back at this moment, though, and think about what we just did. No words, right? A couple seconds. And we were able to hone in on ideas and topics, really zero in on things that didn't really garner much description. Like, that is actually pretty remarkable. And collectively, there are images in our imagination as people living in America in the 20 or in 2019 that speak to us, right? They're shared descriptors of the world we live in. And they do a couple things. One, they tell us a story. Two, they situate us in that story. And then three, they get at our affections, right? They affect us. They make us feel and they make us act. So in the case with the donkey and the elephant, I heard a couple chuckles. They knew right away. We knew right away. If you have the elephant stomping on the donkey, or you have the donkey kicking the elephant, collectively, we will all understand these images images to be making different political statements. And then based off of our political convictions, we will feel differently about each image. So these images can mean a lot to us. But now, imagine that you meet someone from the ancient Near East during the time of Ezekiel, and this time, they don't share the same cultural consciousness that we do, but we try to do the exact same quiz with them. We try and describe and say, what's going on? What are we talking about? Would these images mean the same thing to them as it, did, as it does to us? Of course not, right? For the ancient Near Eastern reader, they would make a particular kind of meaning out of these images, but it certainly wouldn't mean the same thing that it does to us as readers in Seattle 2019. So just as ancient Near Eastern readers would not really grasp the fullness of the images that we've described here, it's interesting that we have to also be conscious that the images we see in a book from the ancient Near East, we might not grasp in the same way that they're grasping. So oftentimes we as readers from Seattle 2019 can be guilty of not really grasping the fullness of the images that are being described here. And so when we look at the passage that we just read, we probably do so coming to the passage thinking with a couple different things. Like we read about sheep and goats and rams and lambs, we read about shepherds, and immediately we draw a straight line to who? We draw a straight line to Jesus, right? And this isn't without reason, Jesus is the true shepherd. That's true. He is the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd above all shepherds. And the Bible is full of shepherding imagery. This is all true. This isn't wrong. But when we're reading the Old Testament, and especially when we're reading in the prophets, Ezekiel is in a book of 
or is a section of the Old Testament that is known as prophetic literature, it has a very specific and particular intent. So it's really important that we as Christians do not overlook what these prophetic words are trying to evoke in us, what these words are meant to do within a community. So Walter Brueggemann, he's a spectacular Old Testament scholar. He talks about the prophets in this way. He says, prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness or a perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture. Right? So prophets, they nurture and nourish, they evoke things, they create an imagination, they create a way of being, or they reveal a way of being um, that serves as something different, an alternative to the dominant culture around us. So what he's saying is that even though the books in the Bible that we group together and call the prophets were written to a specific people in a specific time, in a specific history, a specific context, since it is prophetic, as it is the word of God, these words that we read are meant to shape us now, where we are, our imaginations, as contemporary readers, to be able to challenge the cultural status quo in our time and do that towards faithfulness. So just like how the prophetic words uttered in this time by the prophets did the same thing in their time and culture, we're supposed to be challenged and moved in the same way. So the prophetic word of God is continually reading us. It's continually meant to make us more like God. And especially if you claim Christ as Lord, if you call yourself a Christian, as many of us do in this room, words like this ask us to evaluate the world around us in light of the trajectory of God's redemption, right? So this is why we read this book. This is why we listen to sermons. This is why we study. Because it forces us to engage the world in more and more faithful ways. And our lives are not static. So is everyone following? Ezekiel is a prophetic book. And as a prophetic book, it's not only describing something that happened in the past. It's not just descriptive. It's also prescribing. It's inviting us, it's meant to exhort us to Christ-like action. And that's what this whole genre is supposed to do. So I know that's a lot of preamble, but it's really important for us to set the scene. Today we're going to focus on three things. The first is that as Christians, reading this text, as Christians reading these prophetic words here, This text will not work on us unless we recognize our brokenness. These words will not work on us unless we recognize our brokenness. So take a look at the text with me. Verse 17, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. 
Now, if your upbringing in church was anything like mine, you know what kind of sermon would come next when we read a verse about judging between one thing and another. Um, There's so many passages in the Bible that echo what's happening here. So you have God judging between sheep and sheep, sheep and goats. Um, You have the idea of the wheat and the tares, right? Grain and chaff, pure gold from dross. Like throughout the Bible, there's this kind of judging between one and the other that happens and that is valuable imagery for us, right? Good seed and bad seed. Based on how we've been taught Christianity, it is possible, maybe even probable, that when we read this passage today, we assume that its intent is to reassure us that as Christians, God judges between the righteous and the unrighteous. Right, the holy and the unholy. And so when reading our text, we conveniently assume that we're the ones who are the holy ones or the righteous ones in the example. And we never really question that. And so that leads us to have a trajectory in our sermons, in our teaching, in the way that we engage the text, the way we teach the text, to land on this central idea. Would God separate you into the good pile or the bad pile? Right? That's the trajectory that we typically have for passages like this. Are you here or are you here? Are you living right? You're living wrong. If you're living right, you're this kind of person. If you're living wrong, you're not doing these things. Good Christians do this. Bad Christians do that. Do this. Don't do that. That's the trajectory that we can typically assume with passages like this. But if we take the time to continue reading the text, we'd see that this way that we read this text can sometimes miss a lot of what's happening in this passage. So we can sometimes be so intent on proving to ourselves that God is for us that we miss, again, this prophetic trajectory That's right here in the passage. So God starts at verse 17 addressing my flock, right? He says, my flock, these are his chosen people, his flock. And he says, he will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. But then the very next verse is a critique of his flock's greed and exclusion of others. Look at verse 18. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? And now catch this in verse 19. This is really important. He says, Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Do you notice how he has shifted who he's calling his flock, right? Notice the shift. Verse 17 addresses my flock. And then it's a critique in the next couple verses about that way that verse 17 has treated the rest of the flock. And then he says, hey, the people that have been gleaning on your leftovers, on the scraps, they're my flock too. Are you seeing that? 17 and 19. And so this little shift is huge 
You see, this passage isn't about God singling out his flock because they've lived faithfully. This passage is about God critiquing his flock because they've lived unfaithfully in light of all the good things and the opportunities that they've been given. And so the intent is the exact opposite of how at least I was taught passages like this before. It's the exact opposite. Then going even further, God God doesn't just critique the flock for greed and exclusion. He challenges his flock's self-determination. He challenges his flock's self-identity and calls the oppressed and the excluded into that flock. He challenges that idea and then says, you think your flock is this and it's just here. My flock is here. And that's what we mean when we say my flock. So to put it another way, God starts at his flock's identity and essentially says, hey, my chosen people, you are chosen. You are my flock. But don't you realize that the people who you've left to feed on your scraps are also my flock? Verse 17, you're my flock. Verse 19, they're my flock too. You are my people, but so are they. Flock from verse 17. Do you not see the ways that you've made it virtually impossible for the rest of my flock to eat and drink? Do you not recognize how you've been seeing the world through damaged glasses and as a result have contributed to the world's destruction rather than restoration? Before you start pointing at the brokenness of the world, do you recognize your own brokenness? This is the challenge that's here in this text. Do you recognize your own brokenness and the ways that you are perpetuating brokenness in the world. Again, this is the prophetic critique, right? Right here, embedded in this text, this is what we have to recognize. This text is asking us to recognize our brokenness and do it in a way that's not disconnected or uh, cliche. Like, I feel like sometimes we talk about brokenness and it ebbs into there. Not in that way. And I know what some of you might be thinking. Okay, Silas, this is good. I agree with this. This doesn't apply to me, though. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I'm an open person. I'm tolerant. I'm aware of the world around me. I don't personally mistreat anyone. But pay close attention, right? Like, Notice that God isn't criticizing verse 17. He's not criticizing that flock because they go out of their way to attack the people in verse 19. He's not doing that. Instead, God reveals how the flock from 17, the enjoyment of things that are good, things God has provided. He's revealing how 
the ways that flock has stewarded the world around them has affected the rest of the flock in negative ways. So the prophetic critique here isn't so much about intentional personal attack against the oppressed. It's not so much there. It's a critique of the ways in which God's people, we, have overlooked others through action, through voice, through association, perhaps through apathy, right? And how that has smothered people's humanity. And this prophetic critique is trying to tell us how we as Christians may have been agents of exclusion rather than facilitators of embrace. Agents of exclusion rather than facilitators of embrace. And so this is the disease we need to recognize. This is our brokenness. The predisposition to exclude or to dehumanize or overlook anyone and neglect their humanity. And no one is exempt from this. Like all of us in some way, in some shape in our lives have done this. And this disease manifests itself in a whole bunch of different forms, right? So all the kinds of oppression we can think of in the world still start from a single lie. And that lie is this. There are some people in the world who are less human than I am. Every form of oppression starts there. There are some people in the world that are less human than I am. So like if it's racial discrimination, at its core, there's a lie about worth and racial difference. And then if it's racism, it takes that discrimination and then adds a power structure to it, right? And it combines it to create a systemic institution. Or if it's sexism, right? Like, we make value statements about someone's humanity based on their sex. Or ableism. Like, all of these, all of the um, forms of oppression. Like, heterosexism, ageism, classism, people experiencing homelessness, people struggling with addictions, like, all of that starts from this single lie. They're not as human as I am. I think we get the point. Um, And in this way, this brokenness, this dis-ease, it works on us because in order for someone to dehumanize someone else, catch this, we have to dehumanize ourselves first. Like, in order to have the ability to dehumanize someone else, that view is already showing that we have dehumanized ourselves. And so I know I'm meddling. In my tradition, we call this a meddling sermon. I know this isn't the easiest word to hear. But if the only thing you leave with today is a reminder that the image of God that each of us are created in is the same image that exists in every person we encounter, regardless of how we encounter them, the gospel will have worked on your soul. 
we have to be able to recognize how we're all broken in this way. And again, we're not static human beings. We're continually, continually remembering and being reminded of this. And so we have to own this. Right? The first point here is we have to recognize our brokenness. As I was preparing this week, I was reminded of a sweet old lady who I had the privilege of pastoring when I was in Tennessee. Now, her and her husband are some of the most caring people I know. They've done humanitarian work all over the world, active in the community, in the denomination I'm from. They, they love people. They have people over all the time. Um, but I'll never forget a conversation I had with this lady one day after our midweek prayer service when she pulled me aside and wanted to talk. So we sit down, and I'm thinking, okay, she's going to want to talk about something in the service or something coming up next week. She was really involved. And then she opens up with this line. She opens up with this. You know something, Silas? I've been thinking, and I'm not sure that the KKK are really all that bad. That's the opening line of the conversation. And I've known her for a couple years, and I was thinking a lot of things. But then she went on to say, in that moment, that multiple times when she was little, she grew up in rural, rural mountain Tennessee. And she said, when I was little... And my family didn't have things to eat. Or multiple times when we didn't have presents under our Christmas tree, or we didn't have Thanksgiving dinner, guess who brought the Christmas ham? Guess guess who brought toys to my family? Guess who took care of me and my siblings? Not just one person, an organization called the KKK. And as I was reflecting on this conversation this week, I couldn't help but imagine that if Ezekiel had been this lady's pastor, he might have said the same prophetic words that have engaged us this morning as a way to serve, as a a way to reveal or challenge or cause us to recognize that in our own ways, we are all this lady. Like, in our own ways, we can all look at a good we've received and erase all of the negatives that that good actually perpetuates. In all of, in all of us, we have this ability to fail to understand the impact of things that we benefit from because we have not recognized our own brokenness. So in these four verses, God is trying to cause his people, my flock, to recognize that their own brokenness and the ways that they live in the world are contributing to the oppression around the world. And that is the call here. First four verses. 
But this passage doesn't just leave us merely recognizing our own brokenness, or it doesn't just leave us there. As we continually strive to recognize our brokenness, this passage also exhorts us to review our privilege. It exhorts us to review our privilege. So as we continue on in the text, remember how imagery means different things in different contexts, right? There's a lot happening in this passage. And it's all meant to underscore how displeased God is with his people who have excluded and oppressed others, right? In verse 20, we have the imagery of the fat sheep and the lean sheep. But now, recognize what this judgment looks like. To be a fat sheep was to be the more valuable sheep. And so, as God speaks in this passage, he makes note of this and says, hey, flock from verse 17, my chosen flock, right? My flock who you fail to recognize how every other sheep around you is part of my flock, but you are my flock. You think you are valuable because of how big you are. Like, you've consumed so much that when you are around other sheep, I think this, the mental picture is hilarious. When you're around other sheep, you shove them with your flanks and your shoulder. That means, like, you're so wide that when you're eating, you're running into people beside you, right? Around the belly and around the shoulders. But the value you've placed in building yourself up will not last that value will not last. In fact, the way that you fatten yourself up is the very thing that is going to serve as your downfall. Because the fattened sheep is the one that will get eaten. Such is the nature of the judgment that awaits the fattened sheep. And in this way, this image is meant to serve as a warning for the fattened flock. And it says, review the ways you are living in the world. Review your privilege. It's asking us, are you consuming so much that when you get around other sheep, you shove them with your shoulder and your side and you butt them with your horns when you feel them closing in on you? For us as Christians, we need to be people who recognize our disposition to exclude others of being part of our flock. We need to be the kinds of people who are able to look at our own brokenness, call it a spade, like call a spade a spade, right? Like be able to really look at our lives, recognize when we're individually and collectively failing people around us. So recognize that. But if we stop just that recognition, these words will never leave our head, right? If we just stop at recognition, it doesn't actually do anything. They never cause us to act on a recognition. Which is why this passage then goes on in its prophetic critique, and says, once you recognize, you also 
have to review how you act. Like once you recognize the problem, you have to review how you act. And so these things go hand in hand. From Ezekiel, we need to be people who recognize how we may be corrupted. Recognize our brokenness. And then two, we have to review how we've acted upon our corruption. We need to review our privilege. So what does this look like? Back in October, the Protestant Church of The Hague found itself faced with a dilemma. In its congregation was a family who had fled from Armenia, but now they faced deportation back to the place that they had fled. And this deportation order was mandated by the highest Dutch court. And in this moment, this church had a lot to consider. In a statement, they said, We, the Protestant Church of the Hague, respect the court's orders. But we find ourselves confronted with a dilemma. The choice of respecting the government and the choice of protecting the rights of a child. And so, in Dutch law, it forbids police from disrupting a church service in order to make an arrest. So after one, considering the humanity that's in stake in this situation, right? After recognizing the brokenness of the system around them. And then two, after reviewing their ability to act, their privileges and their ability to steward the people that God has brought to their church. This church started a church service. And the service did not stop. For 96 days, it did not stop for 96 days. One continual service. Ministers and parishioners from all over Europe worshiping in shifts to, pro- to protect the lives of five individuals until the, deper- the deportation order was reviewed and withdrawn. And they weren't sent back to this country that they had fled in the first place. 96 days. This is prophetic witness. Like this is the embodiment of Ezekiel's prophetic words. You want to talk about pushing back on the cultural status quo and being facilitators of embrace rather than agents of exclusion? This is it. For the church of the Hague, who is included when they say, my flock? 
an oppressed family who is being forced to return to a country where they had to flee for fear of their lives? Have they recognized, has the church recognized that there is a family in their community who is being forced to survive on scraps and dirty water? Yes. Have they reviewed their ability to act? Their ability to do something positive in light of what they've come to recognize? Yes. So this brings us to the final point. To live with a prophetic imagination, we need to realize God's covenant of peace. We need to realize God's covenant of peace. We need to be realizers of God's covenant. Last week, Richard had three R's. This week, three R's part two, right? We have recognize, review, realize. In our passage today, Ezekiel is telling us that we need to recognize our brokenness, review our privilege, and then realize God's peace and his covenant. So real quickly, verse 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forests in safety. Friends, in many ways, this is what the Christian life is aimed at. God's covenant of peace. What do I mean by that? What do, we, what do we mean when we read covenant of peace? Well, to start, God's covenant of peace is not the absence of strife or trouble. Right? I want to set that clear. It's not the absence of strife or trouble. The goal for us as Christians is not to live stress-free, trouble-free lives. It's not to create the most stable environment. That may be part of God's covenant of peace, but it is certainly not the goal itself. Instead, when Ezekiel says he's going to establish a covenant of peace, not with Israel, not with the chosen flock from verse 17, but instead with the neglected flock from verse 19, Ezekiel pulls from the concept of shalom, right? And that's a peace which is restoratively bringing wholeness and harmony to all. It's a peace that restoratively brings wholeness and harmony to all. So again, covenant of peace isn't trouble-freeness. Covenant of peace is the restoration to wholeness. When you read peace in the Hebrew scriptures, that's what they mean. When they say shalom, that's what they mean. And so this is the goal of Ezekiel's prophecy, to get his people to recognize, review, and be people who are joining with God in realizing, in making real, the reality of God's peace, God's shalom on earth. This is Ezekiel's trajectory. So I know we've covered a lot today. 
But as we close, I want you to think of a situation in your life this week that you're going to commit to, to try and implement Ezekiel's prophetic trajectory. Think about a moment or a situation where you're going to go through this, this trajectory. You're going to go through these moments. Commit this week to be facilitators of God's embrace. Of course, we want to do that all the time. But specifically this week, commit to turn from exclusion. Recognize. Review. Realize shalom. I don't know what this might look like for you. But maybe this morning you felt God nudging you to re-examine your interactions with a specific person. Maybe it's a broader, more general sentiment here. Friends, who has God brought to your mind this morning? And then what are you going to do about it? How will you let what we've looked at work on you? Right? These prophetic words that don't just describe the past. These are words that are meant to divinely prescribe us to live life that embodies Christ now. God is here. The fullness of God is here. And God invites you to him this morning. Respond to God as you feel led. And let us reflect on this word in prayer and in song. Sean will be here to pray with you. Um, Let's take a moment and reflect in song and in prayer on what God is asking of us as individuals and as a community. I mean, I have experienced this past week the ways in which this community can be such a supportive community. And in many ways, that is great. And in many more ways, my hope is that all might be able to experience that. So let us sing, let us pray, let us reflect on the word of the Lord. Let us pray.